We've been uh, working through the book of James and uh, give you a little uh, recap if you've missed out a little bit on where we've been. We've been talking about James chapter 1 and uh, talked about the very beginning. He said, uh, we can have joy in all trials. And actually, we should consider it to have joy because through those trials and the joy, God is working something out. Now, we can recognize that we need wisdom from God and we're freely able to ask Him of that. He gives it to us graciously. We've got to be cautious we don't get deceived in those trials that we think riches are going to be the things that solve the problem or uh, we think that um, God doesn't give us good gifts, those things come from God. There's some skills that we've got to learn in the midst of those trials, the, the skill of listening well and speaking uh, slowly, getting angry slowly. And in that, we begin to then do the thing that God has called us to do, and we let the Word take root in our lives, and then we start to act upon the Word, and we do the things that matter to God, like taking care of orphans and widows, and making sure our heart stays pure from the world around us. These are all of what happens in chapter James, chapter 1. James in chapter 2 and 3 and the rest of uh, his letter here starts to move into more of our faith is dictated by what we do. And that faith without deeds is dead is what he's kind of known for. And he's going to start getting into this idea that uh, you basically are showing the world what you believe by what you do. Now, when we say that, I want to be very cautious because we talk a lot here about you can't earn your faith or your salvation. You can't prove how much God loves you by how good you are. We don't do for God as much as we are being with God. Those things are all true, and that's part of uh, the, the bigger scope. In fact, Martin Luther, I believe, was the theologian that really struggled with James because he didn't know how it fit with Paul. And when it said that Paul would say, you know, you are, you, there's nothing you do to earn your salvation, and James comes and says, well, you got to do all these things. And, and yet they're talking about the same concept, the same idea. We can't earn our salvation. We can't prove uh, how good of a Christian we are by the things that we do. That doesn't make God more happy with us. But in the same breath, if you are spending time with God, if you are connected and, and, and in relationship with Him, then your life should reflect that in the way that you live. You should reflect that you are more like Jesus the more that you spend time with Jesus. And that's where James is getting at. James is just saying, you can't just say you believe this. You got to say what you believe and then follow it up by, by what you do and how you do things and how you treat people is going to reflect on the fact that you know who God is, you know who Jesus is. And so James starts moving into this idea and there's a pretty much foundational idea of amago day. I always want to say deo, day. In this idea that in all things we are made in the image of God. Genesis chapter 1 tells us that God is the creator. Now, if you want to sit and have a long discussion about whether that was, uh, uh, you know, this way or that way or how many different ways it happened, and we, we, don't, we can do that all day long. But the bottom line in the Genesis is that God is the creator. And in his creation, he made us, humanity, unique in the fact that we are in his image. In fact, it says we are in the image of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So that every person created 
Every tribe, every tongue, every, uh, every person that we, you've ever encountered was made in the image of God. So when you tell your kids God doesn't make any junk, there, there is some real foundational healthy truth in that. Because God makes all of us in his image. Yet we live in a world that wants to kind of separate people. We live in a world that has classes and systems and values based upon wealth and money and popularity and education and status and all these things. You could even maybe even Joe, like, I'm a last born. Anyone else a last born here? Okay, we know that, that mom and dad love us most, right? Okay, there's no debate about that. They love us most. Uh, they screwed up on all the other ones and they got it right with us and they love us most, okay? But that's kind of that favoritism we're talking about, okay? This favoritism around us, it, it, it seeps in even into the church. So now in the church, we've got to say, are we treating people by the view of the way the world sees them or are we treating people by the idea that everyone was made in the image of God? And when we do that, we reflect how much of our lives is being shaped and molded by the world around us or by us being with Jesus. This is where James gets into in chapter 2. This is simply what he says in verse 1. My brother, show no partiality as you hold faith to the Lord Jesus Christ, the, the Lord of glory. He, he's saying, my, my, my fellow believers, you shouldn't be like the world. You shouldn't treat people differently because of the way they dress, the way that they look, how much money they have, whether they have a title behind their name. There should be no partiality in how we talk to people. This favoritism that James is getting to is more significant than just, okay, knock it off. Or, well, you know, we shouldn't be like that, and yet we're actually going to be like that. He's actually telling us this is a matter of our heart. This is revealing something about us. At the best, we need some spiritual understanding and help. At the worst, we don't understand grace and mercy. James literally is saying, don't receive the face. And I, I like that idea because how quickly we, we meet somebody and we judge them based upon what they look like. And he's saying this physical appearance, this physical face that we're talking about, we aren't to judge people. We aren't to show partiality or favoritism towards people based on that. And, and this is something that the Bible talks about over and over and over again. Proverbs tells us to show partiality is not good. Uh, Leviticus, the Old Testament, do not pervert justice. Do not show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great, but judge your neighbor fairly. Treat everybody the same. He goes on and uses this illustration, a familiar one for James, when he says, a man is wearing a gold ring and fine clothes comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing comes in. And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing, say, you sit here in a good place while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. Have you not made distinctions among yourself and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, <coughs> has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs to the kingdom, which has promised to those who love him? But you've dishonored the poor man, and it are not the rich ones who oppose you, and the ones who drag you into court, are they not the ones who blaspheme in the holy name by which you are called? 
James is using, again, another hypothetical but probably real situation that's happening to, to one of these groups, to, to somebody, though. This is, this is hypothetical in the fact that we don't know the names, but it's a real situation that's probably going on that James is addressing. And he's finding fascinating that we would treat somebody who has wealth or money greater than somebody else for, for really two reasons in here. First of all, he says it's fascinating because I've already talked about that, this rich and the poor complex or this rich and the poor paradox. Remember in chapter 1 when he said that, you know, uh, the, the rich man uh, is, is going to not know his spiritual need as much as a poor man is. And that poor man, according to God's economics, is actually rich because of their need for a savior and their recognition of being poor. Right? Blessed be the poor who, who are in spirit. Blessed be the poor. Blessed be the ones who are spiritually bankrupt because we know we need a Savior. And so James is saying, blessed is the poor man because they know they're rich. And the rich man struggles to know that they need something else. And so we've already, James already talked about it. And he's saying, we already know that's how God works. And the poor man who needs and recognizes his spiritual need of a savior is going to inherit everything. And then James also says in, in the same thing about, it's usually the rich person that ends up taking you to court. Or the rich person that ends up making your life more complex. One of the things I've found fascinating, even as I've had a chance to travel around the world, is how much uh, uh, problems the rest of the world doesn't worry about. Because they're just kind of worried about surviving for the day. Living for, 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 for in that moment. And they recognize the value of community and family so much greater than sometimes I think in our own culture. Because we're so much worried about other stuff. James is hinting at this and saying, well, they're the ones that are going to take you to courts. They're the ones that are going to make a couple of, like, why is this even, even happen, happening? And so we remember that the poor are the ones more likely to even know their spiritual need. They're in a, in a better spot. So when they enter into church, they might even be entering in with a greater, healthier understanding of praising God because they know their dependency upon him. It's, it's a fascinating idea that James is saying, why do we do this? Well, the same thing happened in Jesus' time. And if you remember the story when Jesus was at the temple and he was watching the Pharisees come up and they were going through all this kind of uh, parading and performance and, and, and about giving their tithes. And Jesus was just sitting there, people watching. I, we used to do that like, you know, long time ago when they had malls, like you'd sit there and you'd watch people. Jesus is watching people and all of a sudden a poor widow shows up and she quietly with no attention to herself gives of her like pennies into the offering, into the tithe. And Jesus is saying in that moment, it's not the external celebration of how much money the Pharisees gave, but it's the fact that out of her heart, the poor widow gave all that she had. And in Jesus' moment, he was standing and applauding her because of what she was doing. You see, this heart that shows this favoritism is being exposed that we don't really believe Jesus and his word, that there's something more than just the external. We've fallen into the trap of how the world judges, the world views, the world treats people, and we're just going right in line with it. I don't know how many times... 
We do this uh, even in, in the idea of, of the business world, even in church world. Like we have conferences with the people that are, are, are the most successful or have accomplished the most and we praise them and we want to learn from them. And, and there are some good things to learn, obviously. I'm not saying you, you, not, you can't learn, but we treat them like they've somehow better than maybe other people that are just being faithful and doing their job. See, one of the things that I, I found fascinating, I remember Billy Graham said this, and I'm going to butcher the quote a little bit, but it's basically like he, he acknowledged that he's received so much glory here on earth and praise from people that maybe his treasures in heaven won't be as much. And he said, you know, who probably will receive the most is the royal, the royal uh, pastor serving faithfully in his church day in and day out without much praise or recognition. You know, we, we, we got to make sure we don't get things backwards when we talk about what is important to God. We can't get things backwards when we see people and we think they've got it all together. They are, drive a nice car. They dress a certain way. They have enough money in their bank account to go on vacations and all these things. Man, they, you know, God must be blessing them or making their lives so much, so much better than everyone else's. You see, in God's view, we're all created equal. We are all special in God's eyes. James goes on and explains a little bit more how serious this is. He says, if you fulfill the royal law <coughs> according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing a sin and convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of it all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, he also said, do not commit murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. Now, James is connecting <coughs> favoritism to, to the big ones like idolatry and, and murder. Adultery, sorry, I said idolatry. Murder and adultery. And, and, and this principle is pretty much the idea that love God and love others. That's what the Ten Commandments are all about. The first four are love God. The, the next six are love others. Jesus, when asked what is the greatest commandment, he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. He went on even further to explain the good Samaritan, the one that is your enemy, is your neighbor. And we are to love our neighbors as we love God. There's something significant that James is connecting to the, the law when we, see, when we see adultery and we see murder and then we think favoritism. Well, that's kind of a lesser thing. That doesn't really matter as much to God. But in God's eyes, that matters how we treat other people. And James says, if you are guilty of one of those things, then you're guilty of all those things. And loving your neighbor is significant in God's eyes. Especially those who are even in need as he identifies them as the poor. Now again, what does it mean to be guilty of the law? What, what does that look like? Well, <coughs> James keeps this going, but now he talks about judgment. The law and judgment were always hand in hand. The law was given, and then judgment was to follow. In fact, Paul said the law is good and holy because it reveals the judgment that we deserve. Now we know and we recognize that if you are a follower of Christ, that you have surrendered to him, you believe in him, you trust in him, your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. 
When that judgment comes, that the, the, the God's going to look at you and he's going he's to pass over you because of the blood of Christ on your life. Paul tells us there's no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. There's no guilty stain. Even though you may have lived a life that it deserves it, which we all have, Jesus' blood covers over our lives and he passes us by. He passes us over. That's why the Passover is so important. Yet, however, though, there's still another judgment that we will understand and it's the judgment of what we've done in the name of Christ. How have we lived our lives? Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 when he says there's a foundation found in Christ, but you are building on that foundation. And some are building it with wood and hay and straw that when the fire comes, it's going to burn up. And, and, and Paul's basically saying, some of you are acting like you are doing things in, in the name of God, but, you, but you're not, and it's going to have no eternal value. And you think God's going to be happy with you and proud of you because of these things that you've done in his name. And in reality, you've done nothing because you haven't done it in his name. You haven't done it in reflecting of who he is. You haven't mirrored the character and, and, and the faithfulness of Christ. You've just done it by, by your own means and your own, on your own way. And Paul continues, though, and he says, though, some of you are, have built with gold and silver and precious materials that it is going to last for eternity. And so it's this, it's this idea that what we do and how we treat people, it matters to God. And the cool part about this is that even though the world doesn't see it, Jesus does. So when you come and you interact with somebody and you meet somebody, and your mind goes, wow, they must have this background, they must have this, they must, and you start listing all the judgments, but then you start to say, wait a second, that's not how Jesus wants me to treat people. Because everyone's treated in, 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 in the, the image, they're the image bearers of God. That I should show respect and honor and, and value because I don't know their backstory. I don't know their heart. I don't know what they're going through. So I'm going to reject that and I'm going to, God sees that. He sees that how we treat people. He sees how we treat people online. He sees how we treat people behind the scenes. He sees how we treat people when we gossip and we talk about them. He sees how we, when, when, when we don't want to sit next to somebody. or we, we, All these different judgments that we make about partiality and favoritism about people, God sees that. And James says this matters. This is important. And so we are to not show any partiality in that. And I, I think we've got to take a moment and just kind of have a, a sober meditation for ourselves. And ask ourselves, in our heart of hearts, do we treat people differently if they are poor? Do we treat people differently of other races? Do we treat people differently of other genders, other cultures, someone that's uneducated? Someone that lives on the different side of the, of, the, of the street or the tracks or the town, whatever. Like, are we, are we judging the way we treat people based on something other than they're created in the image of God? That all people deserve respect and honor. And that as believers, we can, we can reject how the, the world wants to live. Now, James ends, James ends this section with a little bit of a positive turn. He says, so speak and so act 
as those who are judged under the law of liberty. For judgment without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. <coughs> mercy triumphs over judgment. Now, I appreciate James because I like the idea that, uh, that he deals with the real issue. He doesn't sugarcoat it. He doesn't hide from it. He deals with the issue. But then when he deals with the issue, he says, now this is how we're going to move forward. This is what we're going to do in the future. We can't go back, but this is what we're going to do in the future. I, I love that mentality because it's a reminder. I, I can deal with the issue, but now here's where we're going. Here's how we're moving forward. Here's how we're moving the ball. And James says in two specific ways, this is two principles that we live under as believers. The first one, we're not bound by the law, but we have freedom to live and to, uh, to act as worship. That's what he means by saying to, you, are, you are no longer under that law, but the law of, free, of liberty he's talking about. Now, as I said, the law is good and it's holy. But as Paul pointed out, it, the law could not save us. It was only through Jesus Christ who came to fulfill the law that we are able to now live in the law of liberty. We have been granted freedom to be able to live not by the judgment that we have to, to, you know, measure up to the law anymore, but by grace we can now live in this liberty. So how do we choose to live? Paul's conclusion was to say, as a living sacrifice. My only reaction, the only way that I can say thank you God is now to give my life as a living sacrifice. And so Paul says I'm basically now become a slave to Christ because of such joy he's given to me. It'd be, uh, you know, uh, I, 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 there was a Powerball or something this week, I think, right? Millions and billions of dollars won, whatever, okay? Say you won millions of dollars. And then on the same day, you got a parking ticket to pay for, for you know, I had to pay $20. Like, would you even give a, uh, give a one's thought about paying $20 parking ticket? Because in that moment, you just won millions and billions of dollars? When we realize and we recognize that, that, that we have been given so much in Christ, then we say it's not even a really a sacrifice that I live my life for him anymore. It's a joy and an act of worship and celebration that I can live my life. And so Paul, or sorry, James is basically saying, <coughs> go live your life and show no favoritism or partiality towards anyone, not because you're obligated, but because you have joy. Because you have the freedom to do it. He then reminds us again about mercy, or even in this concept, grace. <clears throat> and mercy can't be fully received until it's fully given. You can't really say you've received mercy and then reject it to somebody else. And what James is saying is that mercy is greater than the judgment. That, that the grace given to us by God and his mercy given to us is greater than the judgment. It triumphs over that. Jesus highlighted this in the parable of the unmerciful servant. If you ever heard this uh, parable before, it's where the guy had a big sum and, and the king or the, the debtor or whoever you know, he owed the money to, he, he, he let him off the hook. He said, I, I forgive you of your debt. Then that same guy turned to one of his servants who owed him pennies on the dollar and he basically said, you need to pay me my money or I'm going to throw you into jail. He showed no mercy to, to the servant. And Jesus said that that guy did not receive mercy because he couldn't give mercy. And so we have to realize that going forward in the way that we treat people is because we have been given so much. 
If you fully grasp that you have received the grace and mercy that God is, is, is no longer going to hold you responsible for all the things you deserve because of the grace given to you at, by Jesus on the cross, then you turn around and say, and I'm going to give the same mercy to those that come into my life because I fully have received it and I fully want to give it. And so the bottom line of what James is saying here is that it matters how we treat one another. That's a big deal to God. That's not just something like, well, we should be better. It's actually at one of the core beliefs of who God is and what matters to his kingdom is how we treat one another. In this specific, specific one, it's how we show favoritism and not judging others. <laughs> and in all this, it's a reflection of our faith in God. That if you say you've been with God, your life is going to look differently than those who say no to God. And that's the way that, that, that all of this becomes in James's mind. And as James moves forward in this book, he's going to continue to say it more and more and more. That if you spend time with God, your life should reflect the heart and character of who God is. And I, I told you before, and I'll tell you again next week, James chapter 2, verse 19, to me is the scariest verse of the Bible. Because it says, even the demons believe in God. And it's that reminder again that Satan's not questioning the existence of God. Satan's not doubting who he is. He knows who he is. He just rejects him and chooses to live any way he wants. And so we've got to ask ourselves, if I believe in God and I want to spend time with him, then I should reflect who he is. That when Jesus came and he walked this earth, he, he hung out regularly with the sinners and the scoffers. The brokenhearted and the, the wounded found comfort and refuge in Jesus. And so we've got to remind ourselves over and over again, there is no favoritism in the house of God. 